Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The Warriors may have won the NBA Finals, but the Stanley Cup is still up for grabs. Colorado and Tampa are dueling it out for hockey's ultimate prize. BetOnline has you covered with all of the props, odds, parlays, and lines for the rest of hockey's playoffs. Use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live, because it's a podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. It is June 21st, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. It is the week of our third anniversary of this here fine podcast, one that has taken me all through my college experience. Walter Mitchell's going to join us today. We have golf post game to talk about. Walter's really into golf. We're going to talk about the live tour. We're going to talk about Joe Buck. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff coming out of golf and the world of sports and stakes and storylines and all the things that we talk about in like the macro level conversations of sports. So I'm going to enjoy that conversation and I hope you, I, well, I, I did enjoy that conversation, but technically by how you guys are listening to it, you're going to uh, also enjoy this conversation that is about to come up later on on this show. Wow, that was a rough start. Anyways, transition. We get to do a stereotypical sports radio A block here today on the podcast because we got news in the NBA free agency front. We have Kyrie Irving possibly testing free agency now that he's reached an impasse with the Brooklyn Nets, which is a sign that Kyrie Irving is now spending the next 10 days tampering to see what any other team is willing to offer Kyrie to join their team. Bradley Beal has apparently already made up his free agency decision, but he's not going to tell us what he's going to do, which if he doesn't re-sign with the Wizards, I'm sure Adam Silver won't start a tampering investigation against that. We have Zach Levine free agency news. We have Donovan Mitchell trade news. What's going to happen with the Utah Jazz? It's NBA transaction week. Yeah, we celebrated the Warriors championship for three days and then everyone got tired of it. So now we're going to do transaction window of everyone making moves that will not make them better than the Bucks or Warriors or Celtics. But we will start off by talking about Kyrie Irving because it's news that is new for Two years we've been talking about what Bradley Beal is going to do. I've been doing podcasts since the early days of the pandemic, yelling at the Utah Jazz and the Denver Nuggets 
to go all in and just trade a bunch of draft picks for Bradley Beal. Give Washington an offer they can't refuse. Be damned what value you get for him. If it helps you get over the hump, who cares how much you're giving up for Bradley Beal? It's it's an all-or-nothing window sometimes, and sustainability is what they've built by having all their draft picks. Zach Levine's been talked about all year. It's even been talked about going back to last year when it was talks about, will Chicago extend him? Will Chicago trade him? Do they start a rebuild when they've missed the playoffs five consecutive years? Well, they ended up signing DeMar DeRozan and trading three first-round picks for Vucevic, and they gave up $400 million and three firsts and ultimately got one playoff victory as a result of it, and Zach Levine still might leave. We've been talking about these stories for years. What we haven't had develop recently is Kyrie Irving sports radio talk, which is talking about Kyrie Irving within the context of his contract and his value to whatever team he's going to join next. And with Kyrie Irving, there's so much other fascinating stuff to talk about. We've done a lot of it on this podcast, whether it's dedicating multiple shows to talking about Kyrie Irving and vaccination status, whether it's fascination from, I remember back in December when the the Omicron spike happened and Brooklyn caved in and said, we're just going to let Kyrie Irving play vaccinated, not vaccinated, be a part-time player. We, we're going to cave. Kyrie Irving's going to get everything he wanted. And how Kyrie Irving is the ultimate test of player power, leveraging that power into getting what you want. Now, normally in that context, it is leveraging power in order to get out of a place and go to a specific place. Anthony Davis used that to get out of New Orleans and get to Los Angeles. Um, We talked about James Harden leveraging his way out of Houston to go to Brooklyn, and then from Brooklyn to Philadelphia. Stereotypically, that's what we talk about when we think of players having quote-unquote power and using their leverage over organizations, and you have to be a certain level of talented player to get that. Kyrie Irving used every bit of leverage he had and whatever bit of leverage being around Kevin Durant bought him to checkmate the Brooklyn Nets into getting exactly what he wanted, but exactly what Kyrie Irving wanted was to stay in Brooklyn and to be a part-time player and to play basketball while not getting vaccinated and continue to make, I think it was like $25 million of his $40 million last year, whatever it was, be able to get paid, be a part-time player, and not get vaccinated and still make it back for the playoffs because New York City lifted their vaccine mandates for indoor venues. Kyrie Irving got everything he was shooting for, and that's because he had the leverage and power to do so. Sometimes player empowerment means you're going to do things that people disagree with. Enos Cantor feels like he is a martyr the same way Colin Kaepernick is. The parallels are there. One is grounded in facts. One is grounded in propaganda. That's the difference there. Enos Cantor has power, and he's using that power in such a way. Kyrie Irving's using that power in a way that's not great. Even LeBron James was posting memes about the flu versus COVID, and thing, and we were uncertain about his vaccination status. It's reported, or at least whispers within, within NBA circles, are that Giannis Antetokounmpo was unvaccinated during the finals last year, and his brother tested positive, and he was going to go visit him after the finals, and his brother's like, Giannis, do not come here. Do not come to this hotel because presumably Giannis was unvaccinated at the time. This was a whole thing about player empowerment and how player empowerment was used to promote causes related to racial justice and social inequity and police brutality and 
It was also used in a lot of cases to promote anti-vaccine stances and things that were not necessarily better for the whole larger whole of society. We've had these conversations before around Kyrie Irving. What's interesting about Kyrie Irving now is that Brooklyn can continue to get checkmated by Kyrie Irving, and it might be a beneficial decision basketball-wise. It was beneficial for Brooklyn to get to give power in the organization to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and for a time James Harden. Those guys were essentially running the Brooklyn Nets. It's reporting by Matt Sullivan of, I think it was the Rolling Stone, Matt, St- Matt Sullivan's from, but he uncovered, a he wrote a book and r- reporting about the Brooklyn Nets. He was smoking weed with Kevin Durant and hanging out with them. And then he wrote this book about protests and the bubble and the pandemic season and all that stuff that talks about how the Brooklyn Nets are basically being run by Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant's agent and business partner. I think it's Rich Kleiman, if I remember his name correctly. And he's a bald guy who has a funny little look to him. But anyways, the the interesting thing about that part of it is the leverage and power of players, and Kyrie Irving's right on the precipice of star player that is able to leverage an entire organization because he's more valuable than any organization. He's right on the precipice. We talked about this with Kyler Murray, where it's like, Kyler Murray's right on the edge of star player who is more valuable than an organization. Like, organizations will line up to give Kyler Murray money, despite the fact that Kyler Murray, under the best of circumstances, might be a player you can win a Super Bowl with. He's a Tier 2 quarterback, and Tier 2 quarterbacks usually lose to the Tier 1 quarterbacks with better teams as you get deeper into the playoffs. Kyrie Irving's right on the edge of that level of player empowerment, where organizations have to cave to nearly his every whim because the alternative is that he will leave your organization or he will use his leverage to make it ugly and that's not going to work out well for your organization. There are a lot of players we know who can do that and Kyrie Irving was able to do that for an entire year with the Brooklyn Nets and Brooklyn might be ready to put their foot down and not cave on Kyrie Irving's contract demands. And that's really interesting because they don't have a lot of great options. They've put all their eggs in these baskets, and and three years later, it hasn't returned value. Now, I'll argue that 2019-2020, during the pandemic year, they knew Kevin Durant had his torn Achilles, and there wasn't going to be a situation where he was coming back, so therefore they didn't have real championship aspirations. And they lost in the first round, and Kyrie Irving got Kenny Atkinson fired, and they installed Steve Nash and all that stuff. And last year, they were a foot away from winning the championship, or at the very least, we talked about this the other week, making it to the championship. I still say that, I mean, we talked about it with Morgan, like, if you want to tell me the Suns are going to beat the Nets in the finals last year, I'm willing to hear you out, even if I disagree on the end result. And one foot is the difference between success and failure by the definitions of this dynasty. And it behooves Brooklyn to continue riding it out and see what they can do as they keep building up this team. Okay, what they have left with Kyrie Irving is you can sign him to a long-term contract because Kyrie Irving knows that maximizing your window of opportunity, this, this might be his last big contract. Maybe he has two big contracts left, like... Chris Paul got $120 million at the end of his career, but Kyrie Irving is going to be 31 next season. He's going to be 30 to 31 next season, 
a five-year contract takes him through his age 35 season. Maybe he has one more big contract after the fact. But this is probably Kyrie Irving's last window to get a $200 million contract. And so he'll likely opt out of that deal because he reached an impasse with Brooklyn and see what he can do over the next 10 days to find a place to go next as he tampers, but tampering's totally fine because ultimately, what is a team going to be able to sway Kyrie Irving with on July 2nd that Kyrie Irving hasn't already considered? And Shams in the report in The Athletic posted that the Knicks and the Lakers were teams that would be interested. The Clippers, I've heard in the past, are interested, and Steve Ballmer's willing to spend that luxury tax money the same way that the Golden State Warriors are. I actually think the, the Clippers might have had a larger luxury tax bill this year than even the Golden State Warriors. It's just that everyone was hurt, and so they missed the playoffs. But the Clippers are going to be really good next year. And adding Kyrie Irving or not, the Clippers are, in my mind, one of the, the two or three best teams in the Western Conference. I think part of that's just simply because they have Kawhi Leonard. But what's interesting about that from the Kyrie Irving standpoint is none of those moves actually make Brooklyn better. And what Brooklyn needs more than anything is a second and third star to pair alongside Kevin Durant. And like maybe they fix their defense with depth. I saw one trade that was proposed with like the Clippers as a sign-in trade that would have been Marcus Morris... And it, w- it would have been Marcus Morris, Luke Kennard, and the 12 pick in the draft this year, or something like that, as like a sign-and-trade. Now, in sign-and-trades, you kind of get what you can get, because the players kind of decided they want to sign with that team, and they just kind of need to get anything out of the trade. And, in- and pretty much any team Kyrie Irving goes to, though, they can make it work. It's just... Whether you're going to trade Harrison Barnes to Dallas or you're going to trade Harrison Barnes to Oklahoma City, like what happened when Kevin Durant joined the Warriors in the first place. So in some ways, that will impact what decision the Brooklyn Nets make if Kyrie Irving walks out the door, which seems to be a real possibility. If you have reporting now actually behind it, and the next 10 days are going to be about Kyrie Irving tampering in his free agency period so by July 1st they've had time to orchestrate and coordinate what a trade is going to look like but I look at that from Brooklyn and I'm like okay so you have a team now with Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Kevin Durant, Marcus Morris, uh, whoever you want to put at center I'll go Claxton and then you have Bruce Brown and Luke Kennard and whoever else you want to put in there, Blake Griffin maybe, as the next guy down the line. Like, it's it doesn't make you a better team than if you had Kyrie Irving. And in a sign-and-trade situation, you kind of get what you can get in those in those situations. I forgot about Joe Harris, too. Like, slide Joe Harris in as a sixth man, or he would be over whatever it is. It, you know, Kyrie Irving, or not Kyrie Irving, Joe Harris is over Marcus Morris, or Marcus Morris is over Kyrie Irving, whatever you want to put it at. Like, that's kind of where they're at right now you can find a team that's eight deep but I don't feel like an eight deep team like that going up against the I mean also I guess they have Patty Mills still but like I feel like going up against an eight deep team without Kyrie Irving where your second best player is probably Seth Curry or Ben Simmons again like whatever player Ben Simmons ends up becoming they're a better team with Kyrie Irving and Maybe this is the classic case like we were talking about last offseason with the Lakers where I'm like, 
the Lakers got a top 40 player in exchange for not a top 40 player, and those usually end up being winning trades. Maybe this is the, hey, dealer strikes out, Kyrie, Kyrie Irving is a, is a dud for Brooklyn, kind of like it was this year. Maybe dealer strikes out in that situation. I just look at it and I'm like, if you're losing Kyrie Irving and all you're adding is Marcus Morris and cap space, maybe you turn that cap space into something valuable. But like come playoff time when benches shorten, you're going to really want those 40 Kyrie Irving points like you had against Boston. And by the way, if they win game one of that series, who knows how that changes? Like they probably don't win because Kevin Durant had the worst playoff series of his career. But I mean, the, the 40 Kyrie Irving points almost win you a game one. And it's just, it's so interesting how they go about that fact. And maybe Julius Randle is the third star that they get in exchange for Kyrie Irving. Because Brooklyn, or sorry, the, the New York Knicks are going to have to do some like serious cap maneuvering to try and make that thing work. And if Kyrie decides he likes living in New York, wants to get the the largest contract he can possibly get, I'm sure largest contract you can get, probably sad franchise like the New York Knicks. Maybe that's your game winner. And you get Randall and Evan Fournier and you walk out with, I mean, uh, let's do the calculation there. So then your starting lineup is Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, Julius Randle, Coming off the bench, you have Patty Mills, Bruce Brown, Fournier, and Blake Griffin. Okay, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a little bit better because you, you bring in Julius Randle and balance out the roster, but it can't be as good as Kyrie Irving, right? Like, Kyrie Irving's just such a skilled basketball player, and... Like, we're doing the calculation on this, like, oh, but Kyrie Irving's off the court drama. Does it add value? All that stuff like that is really complicated, but Brooklyn just doesn't have a lot of great options here. Because I totally get you don't want to pay 30 plus year old Kyrie Irving $50 million a year. That's a contract in two years you definitely want to trade. So if you're debating between zero and five and just hoping something else comes along, like, they didn't give up anything to get Kyrie Irving, but they gave up a shit ton for James Harden. And I know they got a couple of those picks back from Philadelphia that they can kind of like use to buoy themselves back up, but it's it's tough sledding out there if you're Brooklyn. And they found value in at the time taking on bad contracts from other teams. So like you can fart out draft picks out of nowhere in some of these cases, but Brooklyn is really looking around like we don't have a lot of great options at this point and we don't want Kyrie Irving for longer than two years. That's a really difficult game to play. And maybe Julius Randle impacts winning in different ways than Kyrie Irving or maybe Marcus Morris impacts winning in different ways and you're just getting what you can at this point. It's just so fascinating that we've reached this point where now Kevin Durant's going to assume all the power. And it seems like he's still homies with with Kyrie Irving. It's not like they're in a bad place or anything like that. It's just, it's so interesting that that's the place that they find themselves in. Is Kyrie Irving's going to be mercenary guy again? He was mercenary in Boston, who forced his way out two years early. He was mercenary when he gets to Brooklyn. And he's going to do it again, say for the Knicks and be that dude with, you know, $250 million, the only star who wants to go to the Knicks in the last decade, and they'll get bounced in the first round because they're trading in Julius Randle for Kyrie Irving or whatever, Julius Randle and Evan Fournier or Julius Randle and Derrick Rose or whatever they end up doing. Like, maybe that's how they cash out at the end. I'm just, it's so interesting that it's reached this place. 
it's so interesting that we have a move that probably won't determine like the balance of power in the NBA, but it's not like Kyrie Irving's not one of the 15 best players in the sport. Like he's someone you pencil in as an all-star every single year. And it's fascinating to me that he's hit free agency at this point, that he's going to spend 10 days going to the Lakers, which by the way, if he goes to the Lakers, that's going to be annoying as fuck. Seriously, people are going to be so annoying about the Lakers next year if he ends up with LeBron and Anthony Davis. It's going to be fun and it's going to be a train wreck because I don't follow NBA Twitter super closely and I don't watch Skip Bayless and I don't watch Stephen A. Smith and I don't watch people who hate and disrespect athletes for a living anymore. I don't do that type of like trafficking in the social media aspects so it doesn't bother me and I didn't watch any of the regular season games last year so I was late on the Lakers blowing up in everyone's face bandwagon the point being before I got sidetracked there it's gonna be so annoying if Kyrie Irving ends up on the Lakers and I'm kind of here for it and I'm also kind of not because I want to see that concoction of the team in the playoffs in the Western Conference against Jokic and Jamal Murray and Michael Porter or against the Warriors or against Kawhi or or even against Phoenix would be kind of crazy. That'd just be so weird to watch. And I don't know. I'm just interested by that part of it. I'm just interested by this, the transaction because it's like I complained about a few weeks ago in a podcast that is kind of weird, but it's just like, I want something spicy. And this feels spicy in the classic transaction-y type of move because the league's been kind of stagnant for three years. And the pandemic kind of messed with that too. Like there, there haven't been major moves for the past three years because everyone ended up in the place they wanted to go. And system became stable. It wasn't Warriors for three consecutive years winning championships. System stable. System good. Now system a little less stable. Now we don't know what's happening with Zion and the Pelicans. Now we don't know what's happening with Joel Embiid. Kyrie Irving's going to the free agency again. Balance of power maybe shifting a little bit. You've got old generation, current generation, baby generation, all kind of coexisting at the same time. Little shifts of balance of power like Bradley Beal being this year's Drew Holiday and finally hitting free agency or Levine choosing San Antonio or Portland or one of these second tier teams but he should be going to like Memphis and that would just add more spice to the West there's there's little moves that you can I guess people are excited about the transaction for I'm just fascinated that Kyrie Irving's now in the mix because I assumed he would stay with Brooklyn I assumed that Brooklyn would fold and checkmate in that situation and they're looking around like well we only see him as valuable for two more seasons so let's just cut to the chase and see what we can get now it's not even cutting your losses either like I know Marcus Morris isn't great but the worst case scenario is he gets 50 million dollars and now he's untradeable and by untradeable I mean you can trade him but you're flipping him for Westbrook or you're flipping him for John Wall's contract the remnants of whatever John Wall's contract looks like because there hasn't been a lot of massive supermax deals like there were a few years ago where you can just kind of flip the crappy contracts you can flip Chris Paul for Westbrook then you can flip Westbrook for John Wall then you can flip Westbrook for KCP and Kuzma and Harrell and Caruso I guess Caruso just left in free agency but the point still stands there's not giant crappy contracts like there used to be people have prioritized sustainability a little bit better and everyone's got their one or maybe even two stars 
And so I'm interested to see where this ends up with Kyrie. I think the Knicks one would be weird. I think the Clippers would be enticing. Because think about it, if Norman Powell's your fourth best player, that was good enough to win a championship in Toronto. And you're building a team with Kawhi, Paul George, Kyrie Irving, and Norman Powell. I don't even care who's five, six, seven, eight, or 9. Like, even Zubach is still a pretty good player to come off the bench or, or, or be your starting center in that rotation. Like, you get those four players in your starting lineup, you are good enough to win a championship. And the Clippers are right there if they add. That's a super team. That's the spice that I was waiting for. If Kyrie goes... To the Clippers, it takes a super team from Brooklyn, and it moves a super team to the Clippers, and yeah, Kyrie gets to be mercenary guy who no one likes, kind of like James Harden, and he gets to be polarizing figure. Mercenary guy is interesting. It's spicy. It's what I was looking for coming into this NBA offseason, is spicy. It could be more spicy, but it's still pretty damn spicy. I'll just dive right yeah. in. For sure. So we, we love having Walter talk about golf stuff. So uh, the U.S. Open happened this weekend. You can also talk about the PGA Championship, too. We didn't do a golf podcast after that one. But obviously, the U.S. Open was the, the big event of the weekend at golf and did not disappoint, as you were saying before. I'm probably going to crop this and start the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we started. Yeah, sure. Okay, <laughs> I'll I'll find a place to start. It's somewhere in here. Yeah. Do you want to think of the U.S. What do you make of the U.S. Open? Great weekend for PGA golf um, worldwide. Um, <clears throat> you know, it was uh, first of all, it's always great when a championship like the U.S. Open is played at a historical place like Brookline Country Club. In, in the Boston area, which is unusual. Um, living in this area, we rarely have one of the majors played in Massachusetts. And I right off the bat, I was just so enamored with the whole thing because two of my good friends were volunteers. Um, uh, one, one of my friends, Dave, uh, <laughs> he was one of the, you know, the guys who hold the big, big sort of like paddles up behind the tees. Yeah. To, to, the the you know. people who tell you to right. be quiet with the yeah, yeah, paddles. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, toting those and, and uh, you know, raising them up like goalposts and was captured on, on Facebook. Oh, I was just, it was just such a great, great photo. And, and then my, my, my great friend, Sue, um, Who's a who's a Boston area CPA and a fellow Boston College grad? She was with the Lexus team and was doing volunteer work with them, and actually was able to get um, photographed holding the Wanamaker jug. Um, and uh, oh man, and just just to you know have it in Massachusetts was awesome. Uh, we had the local story with Keegan Bradley, um, who really you know played well was in it in contention kind of faded um yesterday but that was kind of cool to have that going but then you had the backdrop of the whole live tournament uh uh live live um you know uh tour with Mickelson and um you know DeChambeau and and others who would come back to 
play in the open and kind of the the um, scorn that they received. Uh, Dustin Johnson included, um, you know, Boston Boston fans. Uh, you know, they <laughs> they are they'll tell you what they feel, and uh, you know, you know, go back to where they live, um, and you know that whole situation is very, you know, sticky, and you know, I think that Rory McIlroe, um, you know, has endeared himself to American people the way Paul McCartney has. He's, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, he's he's got such charisma, and you know the way that he put things in perspective as did Justin Thomas about, you know, we play this game to win trophies, you know, and, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and, and so, you know, he made his, his points very clear and was cheered loudly all weekend and hailed as an icon. And, you know, that was great. But the, then the, what I would say is that, you know, the course held true um, through four days. It was a tough, tough track for all the golfers it was classic um u.s open golf with tough roughs and hard greens until you know the rain came overnight on saturday night and then you know conditions were a little better yesterday because of the softer greens but but the fact that that uh matt fitzpatrick um and will zalatoris plus scotty scheffler took this thing down to the wire um and you know it was it was one of those scenarios where all of them were playing really well down the stretch and, you know, give it their best shots. And, you know, you can, anytime that, you know, a major championship is won on a major league um, effort by Fitzpatrick coming out of that bunker on 18, where he was up against the lip <clears throat> um, and uh, man nailed a shot of a lifetime uh, right in the middle of the green was able to trickle the ball down, you know, lag it down and put it in and, and win. And then of course, Sal Torres had the putt to tie, which, you know, was such a close putt. I mean, he, he put a great stroke on it. And, you know, the whole tournament came down. It was very, very exciting, great for golf and uh, lots of stories. And, um, and uh, kudos to the Fitz, Fitzpatrick clan for all being there and, you know, all the um, festivities that occurred afterwards. It was a great, great weekend for golf. I, I agree with you on that point. And doing the, the waxing poetically about, you know, a place that's close to your home is pretty cool also. We'll talk about the Live Tour in depth, I'm sure, later, because I'm fascinated by that for yeah. probably different reasons than most of America is fascinated by it. But oh. uh, the, the wax, it, the having it be in your backyard. Cause obviously last year I went to the U S open. It was at Torrey Pines. Oh, right. Like 20 minutes from where I live. And yeah. in a mass of people, we ran up and got to see Rom hit that, that putt right at the end. So it was, it was a cool moment awesome. there. And yeah. I, I, I think having it in your backyard is kind of a cool experience. And now this year you got to have the same thing come up for you up there in the, in the Northeast. Yeah. You know, it's just great for business, great for spirit. And, um, you know, the Celtics had just lost and people were down about that, but then, you know, everybody 
you know, switched gears and got majorly into this tournament, and um, it did not disappoint. Yeah, I mean, the ending is the thing that everyone kind of fights for in golf, and obviously it's fun to, if you have the time, it's fun to watch golf during the, the rest of the week before, but if you are really going to get into it, like the, the end of that tournament was really fascinating in terms of like giving you a finish, because I've learned over the years, and I'm, I'm less of a golf fan than I used to be, um, just because I've found other things to do with time and, and not always being around on Sundays. But yeah. the thing that I've learned is that I, it's either great to go right down to the last three holes or have someone just absolutely dominate the competition. Those are the, the things that seem to be the most exciting when it comes right. to golf tournaments. And so if you get one of those it drives storylines because you always have the stakes. Like the majors are the things that have always had the history and the prestige and the things that people judge their careers by. But you can draw storylines from this person absolutely dominates or this tournament is coming right down to the wire and you have yeah. all the stakes behind it. So I think you get one of those. You're usually in, in good company. Obviously, the last two majors had both of those with the, the PGA and now this one. So right. I, th I think it makes it more interesting if you're trying to get back into golf or investing in golf or just care about the four majors or whatever type of casual golf fans might be listening to this. Right. Right. Yeah. Well said. Yep. So who are you rooting for? <laughs> I mean, anytime I, so my, my relationship with golf has changed now where I still know all the players but I haven't really invested in like getting to know a lot of them. Like I still, <laughs> if you ask me who the top five golfers in the world are, I'll probably say who the five best golfers in the world were like four years ago still. Um, yep. Even though I know Morikawa was really good now. And um, obviously Scheffler won the masters and three straight tournaments at the start of the year. But like in my right. mind, I'm still thinking like, oh, Brooks Kepka, gosh, the best golfer in the world. But he hasn't been that for years now. So anytime right. I see uh, anytime I see Zalatoris at the top, I always laugh because his, his name sounds like a villain in a cartoon. <laughs> and it's always funny to see his name at the top. Like, I am Zalatoris. I will win this tournament. <laughs> um, but I don't the Fitzpatrick story seemed nice. Everyone coming out of it seemed really happy for him. I, I know he was kind of one of those guys who's like, you're, you're, sometimes he makes the cut, sometimes he doesn't, but he's never really at the top of the leaderboard. So I thought that was nice. The, right. the kind of equivalent of when, um, God, what was the guy who won the PGA championship like five years ago? Is it, um, Oh, Jimmy Walker. Like yeah. when Jimmy Walker won the PGA championship and everyone felt good for him because, you know, he, he'd won a couple wins on tour, but he was just kind of like scraping by as a professional golfer, if, if that can be such a thing. So I was just glad everyone felt good for, for Fitzpatrick at the end. And that right. made me feel good. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if Salatoris hit that putt at the end. I know. Um, Right. I, I I was out, but I saw the video of Fitzpatrick hitting that like fifty foot putt, whatever it was. Oh, like that was hole, awesome. I think. Right. And and ultimately, that being the thing that decides a major is just fun for like the the entertainment aspect of it because he won by one shot, and that one shot was that fifty foot long putt that goes all the way down the hill and drops right, right in. Right. Yeah, that was huge. That putt. Oh my goodness. 
the timing of that and the momentum and he didn't crack after it. I mean, uh, he stayed, you know, right on track. Boy, he hammers the ball too. Uh, this kid, uh, Fitzpatrick, um, you know, he's got the complete game and you know, he's got a calm demeanor about him and, you know, he's, he's great for golf. He truly is. And, and this is the thing about today's golf is that, and you and I have talked about this extensively, but I think that Tiger Woods inspired a whole new generation of, you know, of thunder gods who can, you know, just bomb the ball, but also like Tiger have the short game to go with it, which is extraordinary. I mean, you know, usually you're either, you know, a great driver and a lousy chipper or putter. It's rare when you find, People can combine aspects of the game and be good at all of them. And, you know, Fitzpatrick's putting was outstanding um, throughout the tournament. So was Zalatoris's. Uh, you know, you know they say drive for dough, putt, drive for show, putt for dough, and that's very true. Um, you know, and the guys at the top were sinking putts. I mean, what did in Scotty Scheffler was. You know, that three putt on, on the little par three that really was his nemesis. I mean, if he plays that in par this week, he's the winner. Um, you know, that little downhill th par three, which I found curious that how he approached it on Sunday. Um, I, I think he didn't want to get the ball up into the wind. And, and you know, he just kind of hit a low liner down, down towards the green and you know, it went past the hole too farther than he had hoped. And then, you know, he wound up three putting. And boy, that was a tough break right there for him. And, you know, the day before, he kind of came a bit unraveled on 10 and 11, you know, making the turn there. So, you know, that other than that, Scheffler would have been, you know, right up there and probably going to, you know, going to win this tournament. Um, Scheffler's been, you know, the thing that has, made him a multiple champion this season and, and number one in the world is he got his, his putter going. And, um, you know, yesterday he had a couple of glitches, um, and in us open golf, I mean, PGA too, you really need to, well, all the four majors, let's be honest, you're going to need to, you know, have the, the short stick ready and, um, and Scheffler's done that all year. He's had a tremendous, tremendous year. Yeah, but especially there where the scores are always super low and they try and mess with the course a little bit to, to put people's scores up, which they've done less of. I think, uh, what was the one at like Chambers Bay? Like, I think it was like six or seven years ago now. But after that, that was kind of an inflection point where they were like, okay, maybe we've gone a little too far in trying to mess up this course for yeah. everyone. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes there is a little too far. And, uh, you know, when they, what was the previous tournament, the PGA, that was fascinating to me in that they made, made virtually every pin location almost impossible to get to um, unless you just hit this miraculous shot, like tucking it like five feet, you know, behind a sand trap and you know, and putting it on a, on a slope or, you know, there are ways that, that, that the PGA can make these courses more challenging. And I think there's, 
they're challenging enough as it is, particularly when, like yesterday, I mean, at, at Brookline, they had, like, basically three levels of rough <laughs> um, on each hole. So if any errant shot was going to be penalized. And, and um, you know, uh, but it's a true test of golf. And, and uh, these courses are just awesome. And, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, but the, the thing that strikes out, strikes me is very auspicious for the PGA um, in light of the whole live tour movement is that um, it is chock full of young gun all-stars. I mean, you know, McElroy faded yesterday, but he was right there in the hunt. You know, when you have Justin Thomas and you have Jordan Spieth and you have um, uh, Colin Marikawa, um, you know, these guys are just so good. And from week to week, I mean, you can you can look at these guys and go, wow, I mean, which one of them is just going to have a, a good good weekend and take the thing? There's just so much talent um, across the board now. I mean, Tony Finau, I think, is outstanding. Um, you know, and, and uh, Matsuyama. Oh, my Matsuyama goodness. Matsuyama had a great one. I'll oh. throw out San Diego State Xander Shoffley just because I feel obligated to mention Xander Shoffley always, even though he hasn't won Absolutely. anything big recently. You know? And then, the, you know, the international contingent, Kyle Lowry, he's usually around the, the leaderboard, um, you know, in the majors. He really, you know, he's, 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 um, um, he, he's just such a just solid ball striker. Wait, are you, are you talking about Shane Lowry? The, I mean Shane, um, Shane Lowry, <laughs> <laughs> the guy who I Thank joke you. looks like he just came out of the bar and just suited up in golf. So like, oh, I'm gonna yeah. go play golf now. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's this generation's Darren Clark. I mean, there's no doubt. It's awesome. You've got to love it. I mean, this guy, this guy just is Tita Green is just really solid. With his putters halfway decent, he's gonna be right up there. He's a fun golfer to watch. He gets, uh, you know, and then you got guys like Mavericks, like Bubba Watson. Um, oh, yeah. He's such a yeah. joy to watch. I mean, uh, and uh, uh, there's just guys with charisma and, you know, Justin Rose, I think is world-class. I mean, this guy's, uh, you know, and Adam Scott, I mean, you know, and, and this young kid, Cameron Smith. I mean, keep an eye on that young buck. He is, uh, he's got the total package and the temperament to go with it. Uh, you know, it's just so much fun to watch so many great golfers go at it week after week. And um, it's a real tribute to the great shape the game is in. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the live golfers can go and make their money, you know, somewhere else. I I don't think it's going to matter. Um, there's too many good young golfers committed to the PGA Tour to not feel that way. Well, I think part of that is the reason why those players are suspended instead of banned from the PGA Tour. Because if the event that the Live Golf Tour collapses and they decide that they aren't willing to keep losing money on this endeavor, which doesn't seem like it's going to be the case because 
they they've already started investing all, like billions of dollars into this and they seem ready to take financial losses for years but i i think the thing that i look at at that is like they're suspended because they will welcome them back if they can make them money which those players still can definitely make money for the pga tour in the event that this whole thing collapses or you break a contract or whatever the situation ends up being and I, I think the, that this weekend in a weird sense, because there's a lot of hostility going in for golf. I think it wasn't one of the defined stars of the PGA Tour and it wasn't a live golfer who won the tournament this weekend. So I think like in terms of quelling that controversy for a couple weeks, I think they kind of like lucked out in like, oh, it's Fitzpatrick. Nobody cares about him in this PGA Tour versus live golf conversation so we don't have to have that be the storyline at the end of the major i guess that's like a win in a, in a way for the i guess the pga maybe the pga tour would have liked if one of their guys had, had won or like one of the front-facing outspoken guys like rom or justin Rowe or justin thomas or rory maybe they would have liked that because then they would have had pro pga tour messaging in the post game but Right. I guess I guess altogether you just get one that kind of makes you forget about live golf for a weekend which for better or for worse I think is just kind of what the US Open was rooting for I guess if if anyone's going to benefit from that I guess it's them cuz right. I guess we're not ta- I mean we're obviously talking about it now but it's not the first thing we're talking about from the weekend and that's something that's probably a little bit of a win but yeah, I think in, in that regards, we talked about this the last time after the Masters, how this is like the third generation post-Tiger now, and you still have people from all three of the yeah. Tiger Woods generations, I guess, because you don't see a ton of golfers that were playing in the 90s and early 2000s anymore. It, like most of right. them have retired. Careers don't last that long, even though they last longer in golf than other sports. But right. you know, you have, like you mentioned, Justin Rose, Jason Day, Bubba Watson, all of Rory McIlroy, then the next generation of guys, whether it's Spieth, Thomas, right. Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, all those guys, and then right. on down to the young guys, Cameron Smith, Morikawa, Scheffler, even though Scheffler's like 27, still thought of as right. a young guy. Right. And yeah. you kind of have that generation all playing at the same time now. And I think that's where the the golf renaissance that people like to talk about comes from. Is that right all of these new generations post tiger all have something to, to watch. Right. I don't understand, you know, like Sergio Garcia trashing on the PGA tour. I, I don't get that. I mean, he's made a living off that, you know, and he's created a fan base. And now, you know, and Mickelson is, looks broken. Um, you know, I don't know what this does to his legacy, which I didn't think he wanted let anything touch and uh now he just you know he he just has lost it um and he's lost favor with with uh, fans and you know I, I it's just hard to fathom why you know a, a player a, an iconic player who has you know been idolized and adored on the PGA tour would want to take this drastic measure other than you know, for, it, for the dollars, dollars, dollars. 
Well, that seems to be the only thing that the Live Tour is offering, right, is exponential increase in your finances. At least for a lot of these people, it's exponential increases in finances. And, you know, last year after the PGA Championship, I don't know if you remember when we did the golf podcast. It was one of our first, like, golf podcasts we did. And I was... I still stand to this point of I don't understand why everyone is so infatuated by Phil Mickelson because Phil Mickelson happened to exist. I know the answer is because he happened to exist at a time when um, golf got that giant boost from like the common fan because of Tiger Woods and like Tiger Woods was the most famous athlete in the world and all these casual golf fans were tuning in to watch golf to watch Tiger Woods Right. And the second best player at that time was Phil Mickelson. Right. And so because of that, everyone kind of gravitated towards like, well, he's the second golf person. If Tiger's number one, he's the second golf person. The same way people look for like Brady Manning or, you know, in the NBA, LeBron, Steph Curry or whatever else people do to try and generate um, Rafael Nadal. Djokovic or Federer right. Djokovic right. Nadal. Like the way people do that, they just need a worthy adversary to Tiger. Right. Even though, like, Phil was the closest thing to it, they kind of existed at different times. But I, I'm always fascinated by that. And I think that's aged gracefully of, like, I don't understand why people still care about Phil Mickelson because he existed for, like, 15 years ago as the second best golfer in the world. And now he's just a mercenary guy who's still profiting off of 15 years ago being a super famous golfer. And I, I just... I don't understand why everyone still cares so much about Phil Mickelson and will enable him to make $200 million by going over to the live tour. I, right. I just, I didn't understand it then. And I, I it's aged gracefully. So maybe that's part of why I'm doubling down, but I, I just don't understand it now. Why, why people still care about Phil Mickelson. It's, it's been 15 years since he was relevant in the grand scheme of golf. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you hear the rumors about his gambling debts, and you know, here's a guy who had it all. I mean, the great family and the kids, and you know, seemingly a great family man, and you know, um, but uh, yeah, I've heard something to the effect of forty million in gambling debts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that could could have been a factor. Just to, if something was oh, going to sure. cut him a check yeah. like that, you know, and I guess Greg Norman is kind of the the uh, catalyst for this live tour, and um, you know, uh, so I mean, they've got some you know, star like him, a previous star like oh, him. Combined, uh, you know, uh, com- they tried to get. That um, yeah, Jack they, Nicholas is being sued by the Jack Nicholas organization for damaging the name of Jack Nicholas for taking a meeting with the Live Golf Tour, even though he decided not to partner with them. Yeah, I mean, and then you've got that, and then you know the the Live. I guess the Live Tour has events scheduled at Trump um, resorts, and you know, um, you know, courses. Uh, uh, with some people, that's not going to go over very well. Um, you know, it's, it's they think it's going to be a cash cow, and you know, eventually. And you know, the other thing is major differences. Um, uh, you know, playing fifty-four holes instead of seventy-two. 
I mean, for some older golfers, that might be very, very exciting. I mean, I don't know if they'd ever get their hands on Tiger Woods. I wouldn't think that Woods would need it financially. Um, but, uh, you know, you never know. Um, I, I, I'm hoping that doesn't happen. But, I mean, why fiddle with a great thing? I mean, no, no situation's perfect, but, uh, you know, man, oh, man. I mean, the PGA Tour has never been brighter and better, in my opinion, than, than it is today. Uh, other than in the Tiger heydays and the Jack Nicklaus heydays. I mean, when one golfer was dominating, today you have so many outstanding golfers and so many wonderful venues on the PGA Tour. I mean, the Players' Championship every year is such a joy. Uh, you know, and then the the events, the Arnold Palmer tourney, the Jack Nicholas at the Memorial. I mean, all these are, are historic venues. I mean, Augusta, I mean, nothing other than St. Andrews, which is coming up next month really can rival Augusta, the, the charm and the, you know, the just sheer brilliance of Augusta. So, and then down in your neck of the woods with Torrey Pines, it's just such a, um, you know, such a tremendous uh, venue and, you know, Pebble Beach is just awesome, you know, and then you got, oh my goodness, um, so many good, good, uh, good venues and historic venues to turn to with the world's best golfers. I mean, I don't know why you ever want to mess with that, but you know, it's just, it's capitalism at it's, you know, highest, you know, in its highest form. And, you know, the, the, the pursuit of the almighty dollar, you know, just goes to show how people can be persuaded, um, away from, you know, uh, golfing lore in favor of taking the money. I do think there are reasons for wanting to start a new golf league or wanting to put pressure of competition on the PGA tour. Like the first thing I think of is like golfers don't have a union. The professional golfers should probably have a union when, when negotiating with the PGA tour, instead of taking whatever percentage the PGA tour allows them to make of of golf-related earnings and the PGA getting to control their own books without having a whole lot of governance around that. I do understand that part of it. It's just when you start dealing with the Saudi Arabian government, that's where a lot of people are going to draw their moral lines in different places. And, you know, I, I, someone brought up a great point here of, and you mentioned the Trump International Golf Course thing, like the asking golfers to have higher moral standards than the United States government and most world governments is a difficult ask. It's just in this battle, it's kind of become a, a point where it feels like everyone's yelling, love it or leave it on both sides. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of defeats the purpose of like making the PGA tour, your per making the PGA tour, your gold standard when it's, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not something that really should be idealized in that respect. But I think everyone's just gotten to a place where everyone feels threatened by what the future is going to be. And the fear that, that, uh, that a Saudi Arabian backed golf league might end up being a superior competition to the PGA tour and the PGA tours business model coming under attack from, you know, some of the same stuff that we're talking about with the NCAA of not 
accurately compensating your labor and all kinds of stuff like that. So I get that part. It's just weird that it's, I mean, it's not weird. We do this in most aspects of life, but this has kind of become a love it or leave it type of argument. And I feel like it's missing the whole purpose of what the live golf tour can actually create when, you know, maybe Phil Mickelson was just saying it for shits, but he was like, you know, this is a once in a lifetime chance to reshape the PGA tour. And I'm looking at the decision-making after that. I'm like, is it, or is it a quick payday for a lot of you guys? And maybe it can be both. Maybe that's the intention there. And it actually can achieve that. Just mm-hmm. not with the government that bone saws journalists and help fund nine eleven. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing, the four majors and, if you want to count the players championship as a fifth, they're not going away. They're going to last forever. And with good reason. Um, And, um, you know, it's a risky venture. I think there's enough interest in golf worldwide for the live tournament to exist and, and to do well. But I think that, uh, you know, the allure of golf is as Rory McIlroy put it so so aptly is you know the pursuit of these championships and um that getting a name on on the trophies of of the four majors and then of course then the and then the the players championship uh, you know it's it's that's that's the been the lore of golf the history of golf um i don't see what's so wrong about the pga tour that people would want to you know yeah no golfing unions, but also, I mean, these guys, these golfers live on endorsements. I mean, they get, they get all kinds of perks and, um, you know, I don't think any of them, you know, with the kind of money that, what, what was the purse? Yes. I think, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, came home with 3.1 mil. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For the whole tournament, I think it was like 17.5 million or something. Yep. I mean, you know, the, you score in the top 10, you're going to be rewarded handsomely. And, you know, um, it's a good living and it's a good life. Uh, you know, you can take breaks during the during the year. And um, I like the way now that they're doing the majors in consecutive months with starting with in April with the Masters and then going to the PGA in in May and then the the uh, U.S. Open in June and then the the Open in July. That's awesome. Um, it gives you gives fans it lets fans get locked in for four months there. And there's great little tournaments in between, and you know. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that they've got a great thing going. And I can't imagine the live tournament. Um, at least for Americans ever living up to um, what we got going with the PGA. Well, this was part of the whole calculation of um, golfers who were leaving in the first place was, are we going to be barred from making it to the majors? Are the majors going to take a stand in keeping the, the PGA tour alive? Because ultimately they have all the concentrated power in making this decision if the majors decide if if one or two or even three of the majors decide something if they, if they decide they they will not let live golfers play all of a sudden the live golf tour dissolves that's how much monopoly power 
they have over the sport at this point. And when they got the word that it's like, we're going to sit this one out, then it made it easier for people to jump ship and go over to the live tour because they knew that they were going to still be able to compete in majors. And I think that was the right decision. I think time, time will tell whether that looks great, looks right upon that decision. I just, I don't know what to do with that. And I've, I've kind of like looked at this the same way I looked at the Olympics, which was mm-hmm. I, I wasn't really going to watch it that intensely in the first place. Mm-hmm. Then after hearing about all the stuff with China and human rights violations and the, the IOC commissioner giving a very pro Chinese propaganda speech during the opening ceremony, that was kind of when I went to it and I'm like, I'll just, I just won't watch. I just won't give the financial support. But the, the thing that's interesting about that is you can withhold your dollar from the live tour and they're still going to keep going because the live right. tour is in it to lose money right now and possibly looking to sports wash for the Saudi Arabian government. And at that point, you're just like, okay, I guess it has to exist. If we want it to not exist, I guess the majors have to step in and say, you're not going to let people play. But uh, you know what? I, for now, just let it kind of coexist, I guess, because maybe it will create some change. I don't know. It's a really difficult line that people are trying to draw in trying to draw moral lines around all of this stuff is difficult because then it becomes a leave it, or, a, a leave it or lose it argument like it's become over the past few weeks. And I look at that and I'm like, both of you aren't necessarily in the right here, but morally i'm just gonna stay away from all of this stuff because i don't actually watch pga tour golf mostly in the first place maybe once or twice a year i'll watch one of the non-majors but i don't usually watch it in the first place yeah i i'm pretty much a weekly watcher um on the weekends um but uh and then i'll I'll (laughs) probable weekend is when i'll watch it yeah the waste management Pro Bowl, mm-hmm. the Super Bowl week. I mean, that's a fun tournament. I mean, there's just tons of good golf, tons of great venues, and it's fun to peek in on a Saturday and a Sunday and see what how these guys are are doing. And you know, I I don't I have no problem with guys playing the eight the live tour and then coming back to play selected tournaments in America. I have no problem with that. I mean that doesn't bother me. Do what you want, um, you know, and, and do what's best for you and what you think's best for your family and for your brand. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm fully in favor of that. I don't hold a grudge against any of those guys if they want to go to go do that, as long as they qualify, um, and as as you know, um, then or you know, play it, play to get in, um, in a qualification scenario. And, you know, if you qualify, sure. I mean, why not? I mean, it doesn't have to be inclusive, you know, all exclusive, um, at all. In my, in my opinion, I mean, I had no problem with Mickelson playing this weekend or, or Dustin Johnson or any of those guys who want to go over to, to, uh, you know, the live, you know, the other thing is too, is, you know, a lot of these live events are going to be, you know, all over the map and over the globe. And, you know, there's going to be a uh, wear and tear travel wise for, for these guys who want to do it. And, that, and that's fine too. So, you know, whatever, however it shakes out, I don't think it's, 
worth the hassle of the PGA to suspend these guys and, you know, make them per- total pariahs. Um, I think the PGA just kind of has to do that because it's something that does directly impact their business model. Like you're taking away people who would make money and now you're creating a competition that while it doesn't seem legitimate now, if it does, then the PGA all of a sudden has to evolve and adapt, which the PGA has been resistant to. So they, they just kind of have to because they view the live golf tour as like a, a competitor. So they, I mean, they're trying to take the moral stance on it, which is kind of gross, but it's the same thing I point to with like the NCAA of like the NCAA banning people or suspending people when they break NCAA violations. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I understand why you're doing it. It's just incredibly stupid that you are doing it because they have to, they have to concentrate all the power for them to have any kind of, governance over college sports and it's kind of the same thing for the pga tour you have to be a monopoly in order to have monopoly power and continue to not equally compensate your golfers Uh, well i don't think they i think you know what kind of business i don't see why they're going to lose business um with so many great golfers and so many great venues and, you know, great competition. I mean, you know, I don't think people are that sold on one golfer to, you know, turn their allegiance away from the PGA events that are iconic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I so, you know, I just, if I were PGA, I would say we're going to go on being great. And, you know, whoever wants to play will, uh, know do all we can to support them and if they don't we'll move on i mean you know i mean i don't i mean i think the only golfer in the world that people would go watch another tour for would be tiger woods and you know he's kind of past his prime now anyway and mm-hmm. and uh you know tiger says he's coming back for the for the open and at st andrews which should be stunning. Um, you know, so um, that's Yeah. I mean, but beyond that, I mean, it's a really wonderful word, um, that people will, will, um, you know, arrange their whole golf lives around. I don't, I don't I, think so. No. no, I think what they're banking on is just enough people coming over will make it a product that people want to watch. And theoretically, if you're doing the math, if people have a fixed amount of time for golf, because like the alternative is people will watch more golf. It will expand the market and everyone gets more of the pie. But if you're operating under the assumption of like golf fans only have a fixed amount of time to watch golf then you're breaking up viewership between the two leagues. And theoretically that, um, that leads to them having less viewers and therefore they can sell less advertisers, which is not exactly how the business model works, but it's just a dumbed down version for the sake of the conversation. So I guess that's the argument there is like, if golf fans can only pick one or the other, then Mm -hmm. It, it creates a, a, an adversary to the PGA tour. The only difference is you have to watch the live golf tour on YouTube 
they don't have a television contract. So it makes it stranger in the short term. But I, I think altogether, it's, it's semantics argument. Like in most businesses, competition sometimes leads to a larger market share for everyone because now more people are interested in your product because there's now better product, even though I don't, I don't think the live tour makes it better product. It just gives a, an adversary, but I could, I understand like, this is a threat to our business model. And if they're paying this much over here, we have to start paying more over here. Not yet, but I think they're kind of doing the monopoly thing of trying to like crush it before it even gets a chance to breathe. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't see it as that major a threat. And you make a great point about the, the TV, um, you know, <laughs> options. So, I mean, as of right now, I mean, someone, if there's money at one of the major networks will jump in like Fox or something and, They'll take Joe Buck away from baseball <laughs> for a few, <laughs> few months or something, and even have Troy Aikman <laughs> with him or Bring something Troy like Aikman that. Over. I mean, with uh, their with their new big old ESPN deal. By the, I don't know if you saw the the first two days of the PGA Tour, but they had the the um, Michael Collins guy on ESPN talking to Joe Buck on the golf broadcast. I was just like, God, it's so weird that Joe Buck's on ESPN. That's oh, never right. going to look normal. Yeah, yeah they're not, <laughs> that's right. They're not on Fox anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and never going to look. Fox normal. is just waiting for Brady to retire. He's going to be the next John Madden. I, um, I guess I <laughs> I have no evidence to suggest Tom Brady's good at that job, but yeah, I, I guess. Oh, that, he'll. Be, Tom Brady's great in everything he does. So. He will be, he'll jump right into that and be, uh, yeah, he'll be a natural. I like that Greg Olson's calling the Super Bowl this year because that was kind of a random, random pull out of the hat because Fox has the Super Bowl this year. It was like, I guess we're going to have, we can't get Sean Payton. We can't get Sean McVay. I guess Greg Olson will call the Super Bowl this year. I thought that was interesting. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't know. Tom Brady was always just the guy who never said anything before. But I get it. Like, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning are going to carry water for the next era of football by being on broadcasts and such like that. But I, I get why they did the Tom Brady thing. But, yeah, the, the, the Joe Buck, Troy Aikman experience on ESPN is something I'm not prepared for. <laughs> yeah. No, right. Well, we'll see. Well, everything's subject to change. and. You know, um, they'll do a good job. They'll, uh, you know, I like them. I, I, I've always liked them. Um, they're the, they've been they've been calling every big football game for like twenty years. Yeah, and uh, you know, I have no problems with them. Um, you know, I I don't think they rival like Madden and Summerall or anything like that, but. I think they do a fine job. I, I'm not, I don't, um, you know, they're kind of a interesting team in that, you know, the, Troy Aikman's just kind of, you know, he's, he's kind of a flat personality and uh, Buck's kind of a, a round one. So uh, that that works well. I think they have a certain chemistry there. Um, 
but uh you know i love the golf announcers uh david flaherty what a what a hoot he is <laughs> i love him i mean I I, i'm so glad when he goes on the broadcast and you know fox doesn't have those um broadcasts anymore but fox used to have golf and i'm glad that they get two of those because that, that david flaherty guy who's got the scottish accent it's very funny to watch him do golf broadcasts it's so great <laughs> yeah he's he's great and Vern lundquist is an icon and you know i like paul azinger a lot i think he's he's outstanding um you know, and um, yeah, I mean, yeah. The guy's name is Dan Hicks, I think. Is he the guy who calls? Dan Hicks, yeah, he's golf. good. Yeah, yeah, he's fine. Mike Tirico. Um, you know, they've got, you know, they've got good, good announcers in golf. Um, love the interviews they do afterwards, uh, and you know, they do a great job with that. That that I look forward to as much as anything. Um. So, yeah, I think golf is in great shape. You know, competition never really hurts. But I, it's pretty good. It'd be like some football league trying to compete with the NFL right now, and that's just not going to – nothing's going to touch right the now. NFL now. And, uh, you know, you can generate some interest from some people. And maybe the live tournament is more popular overseas. Um in a more international feel perhaps, but you know, I don't feel like the PGA should feel that threatened by it. Um, you know, it's not going to stop, uh, you know, patrons from attending these, these outstanding events. And there, that's the thing is the, the field is so deep now. I mean, there are multiple, multiple golfers to go see. I mean, it's not just not like like it was with one or two, and you really you know wanted to catch them in their primes. There's just uh, and there's a new new guy bursting on the scene, all, seemingly almost every weekend. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, so I think it's in great shape. And yesterday, uh, we saw great golf um, on a very tough track. Um, with, you know, two guys who've never won on the PGA Tour going neck and neck. And then the world's number one right behind, um, just inches away on putts from, from uh, making it, a you know, one of the most historic years ever for a golfer. I mean, I don't think Scotty Scheffler drops out of number one after this week. I mean, what did he finish? Third, right? Mm-hmm. Tied for tied for second, right? So oh yeah, yeah, it would have been tied for second. You're right. Yeah, I mean, so it's not going to hurt his stock at all, and, and um, you know, it's, it's a it's just uh, the talent is just too deep to worry about it. In my opinion, unless tons of tons of them flock over there, but I can't imagine that. I can't imagine it anytime soon, but the the the, um, the Saudi-backed government would have to pour billions of dollars into it before they start convincing people to come over. They'd have to lose a lot of money in order to create something that's adversary. Because right now you just have the first wave of people, right? And maybe people have drawn a line in the sand, and there's not much that's going to move them anytime soon. But years from now, if this thing still exists, I think we could have a 
a bigger conversation. But I mean, lots of other leagues have tried. Lots of other leagues have failed. It's it's not easy to create an adversary once the establishment is already in place, and especially in sports where sports benefit from having a monopoly when it's everyone in one league the yeah. the, the thing runs better um but it's it's just at this point sports has become such a big economy that it's it's impossible to compete financially with any of the major sports now golf might be something that's you know golf is something that maybe isn't qualified as a quote-unquote major sport and so it's not too big to fail if you have enough money um but I just I don't think that anything's going to happen there. It's going to be a it's going to be a side thing that every month or so is going to draw people in just out of curiosity. Right. Um, I've I've just decided I'm going to stay away from all of it because you you like golf more than I do. I presume I don't. I'm not watching golf on weekends other than sometimes to see who wins the tournament or something like that. But I, I assume that someone who's a bigger golf fan and, and commits more time and you know, watching golf and investing in the storylines of golf. I'm sure that it's not something that's out of, like, it's not, you, you know, the names, but it's not something that's like you're eager to seek out in the same way. Like right. I want to watch more golf. Therefore I'm going to go over here. It's, it's more of a, it exists, but it's not something that's directly competing for my time and attention. I, that's well said. I think the majority of golf fans love the majors, love the players' championship, circle those on the calendar, and then, you know, if it just so happens on a Sunday you're, you're channel surfing and, oh, they're, you know, you're, you know, at the Byron Nelson suddenly, oh, yeah, wow. You know, and, and, uh, and you see some of these guys at the top of leaderboard, you're apt to tune in i i think you're right about that i don't you know it would take a real avid golf fan to like watch all of it on both sides and you know, watch the pga and the live tournament and you know, i don't think there are too many fans like that uh and so no i'm i'm not gonna really take that keen of an interest in watching the live tournament if it's the only thing on tv and right now like you said they don't have a tv contract um, yeah, you can stream yeah, it on probably, YouTube on their right. on their personal YouTube channel. You can stream it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I mean that in itself, I, it's going to be a deterrent for many. And you know, I, you know, it's fine with me if they make it. And, you know, they have a, you know, um, a competitive um, business there. I, I don't think it hurts, but nothing's going to take away from the PGA. Um, and and what it means for those, particularly those who have been following through the years and have become enamored with the with the venues and the and the uh, and the deep fields of of talented, really good players um, that uh, you know are fun to watch. I mean, I'll be honest: of the guys that have defected, the only one I'd really miss is Dustin Johnson. Um, and, uh, you know, Patrick Reed and DeChambeau, um, you know, I, I don't mind them, but I'm not that enamored with them that I'm going to, aren't they already kind of viewed as villains in golf though? Like, aren't they kind of like not, they're viewed as (laughs) like the heels of this weird arena that they have. 
yeah, you know, I mean, it's just bizarre that ever since that Kapka um, DeChambo um, tiff, you know, neither one of them's been the same. And, uh, <laughs> they cashed out on the beef. Yeah. They got the, they got the five million dollars from TNT to go do the the match between the two of them. Right. They cashed out and they're they're good. They don't need the beef anymore. They turned it into ten million dollars. We're good. <laughs> we don't need this anymore. <laughs> yeah. We don't yeah. need to keep beefing. No. And um, yeah. I mean, I think the one thing someone could do uh to attract interest would be to have a british islands tour because of all those historic venues and you know hitting each of them um you know carnoustie and st andrews and you know i mean if they went around the track for like two months um when golf was in its splendor in 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 scotland and in england and in Ireland, um, if they went around the horn there with with groups, that could be that would be interesting to me um, because does the European the tour venue. not do that? I I don't know anything about the European tour. I just would have guessed that they they do something like that. Saint Anne's, you know, I I I don't know. Um, I don't think that they regularly. I I don't think there's a tournament at Saint Andrews every year. For example, like that is with Augusta. I don't think there's a tournament at Carnoustie every every year. Um, you know, uh, so I mean, if they had a, because those venues are so attractive, um, I think that they could they could draw a whole lot of interest. The problem with that then becomes that for Americans, you know. We, particularly on your side of the country, um, you'd have to be watching golf at 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's fun once a year. It was also fun. Right, um, right. Do you, do you remember when Tiger won the Masters and they had the, the rain was on the way, so they had to start at like 9 o'clock on the East Coast? It was fun to get up at 6 a.m. and watch golf that one time. That was fun. It was just, uh, yeah, yeah. It was something that when yeah. I was, I was like a senior in high school. I was like, I will go to sleep at nine o'clock on a Saturday because I want to watch this golf tournament at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Right. That was, right. that was the one time yeah. I was like, yes, this is worth it. <laughs> yeah. So on a final note, who is your favorite golfer right now? Favorite golfer. I mean, just obligated to say Shoffley because he's from San Diego State. So I'll I'll put Shoffley in there as as my guy. Um, God, I I got so when I was really interested in golf, which was I guess when I was in like early high school, I guess, and I was like watching all these tournaments and all the majors for two days. I really loved Jordan Spieth. I really loved watching Jordan Spieth. Right, right, yeah. and. I loved Kepka when he was winning like four majors in two years. Cause again, I just love the idea of the dominant golfer who goes on a stretch where they just start playing so much better than everyone else. I find right. that fascinating and the greatness of that. So I loved Kepka then. Um, I guess those are the three that come to mind for me, but I guess those are all like older generation guys. If I'm trying to think of the new guys, uh, yeah, right. I guess I, I like Morikawa. 
I like Colin Morikawa. Me too. I, do I don't too. have much of a reason why. I guess because my my biggest golf fandom, I guess, was the last generation of golf, and it, it's been a few years since I really, really got into golf. So I guess they're from the the Spieth, Justin Thomas, you know, Bryson, Brooks Kepka guys who are now like in their late twenties and early thirties, but they were kind of like young upstart guys like five or six years ago. Uh, yeah. I never liked Dustin Johnson. And then I ended up figuring out that it was kind of good that I didn't like Dustin Johnson, but it was always strange. I think it was cause that one chambers Bay one where he was going up against Spieth and I really, really wanted Spieth to win. And so I kind of like was rooting against Dustin Johnson. And after that, I just never really came around on him. Right. Uh, so I guess that generation of guys are the ones I like. I like Rory, I guess. I've never never had strong opinions about Rory, but he was cool. I used to like Ricky Fowler because he was viewed as like the cool golfer, even though he didn't yeah. really win very much. But yeah. he was supposed to be the next hotshot star golfer and made a lot of money out of that. But, right. you know, I, I guess he was cool. I guess that generation of guys, the, the not the – not the Justin Rose, Bubba Watson, Jason Day generation, but the the one kind of with Jordan Spieth and those guys from like 2015 to 2018 was, I guess, peak golf interest for me. So I guess that those like four or five guys are the ones that I'd point to the most and be like, oh, cool, they're doing well. When yeah. Justin Thomas won the PGA, I was like, oh, good for him. Good for good for Justin Thomas that he won the tournament. Yeah. Yeah, well, Even if I wanted the, the Chilean guy whose name I forgot to win the tournament. So I was still like, good for Justin Thomas. Neiman. Yeah. What, no, yeah. was it Neiman? Or was it yeah. the... Wasn't the guy who like made his first... Because I know who Joaquin Neiman oh, was. Yeah, Joaquin who Neiman. Was, oh, yeah. The guy who just burst onto the scene, too. Oh, uh, yeah. Who was right was up his, there in the in the PGA. What yeah, what's the same? Yeah. He, he he missed the shot at the end of the tournament. Gosh. Yeah, he played really well. I know he's from Chile. And that's great for golf too, these Chileans, the two Chileans who burst onto the scene. That's awesome. And Ansel from Mexico, he's a good good young player too. Um I love the international feel of the game. It's just great. Uh, some of those, uh, you know, Asians, the Koreans, Kim and um, and others, or Matsuyama uh, over in Japan, and yeah, I mean, th those guys are those guys oh, are really. It good. was uh, it was Mido Pereira. That yeah, was who it was exactly Pereira. Yeah, I forgot Zalatoris was in that playoff. Now I, I guess I didn't watch too much of that tournament, but I forgot Zalatoris also yeah. finished second in that tournament too. Yeah, he took it really hard yesterday. Uh, was very emotional with the media. You know, he said this one really hurts, and you know, he's been knocking on the door. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, oh, you know who else I like? Who I forgot? Just looking at the leaderboard from the PGA, I like Tommy Fleetwood. I don't know why. I just really yeah. like Tommy Fleetwood. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, yep. He's got a a good fan base. Uh. Yeah, there's some appeal to those British golfers. I, I really like. Uh, I just have such huge respect for Justin Rose, and and my favorite still is Rory. Um, I just like the way he comports himself. Um, you know, I think he's 
and I love the way he loves America and uh, and it's embraced here. Like I said, it, it reminds me of kind of the way America has embraced Paul McCartney and John Lennon back in his day. Um, uh, you know, all the Beatles really, but uh, and we could probably come up with a list of Beatles right now that have endeared themselves very heavily to uh, American fans uh, as if, you know, they're adopted sons. And I think that uh, Rory has done that. He's, he's an international icon, and, um, but it's clear he, he's a loyal guy um, who appreciates what the tour brings um, in terms of its lore. He's a historian like Tiger, um, which I always appreciate about Tiger being so abreast of the history and lore of golf. I mean, very mindful of that. And on the American mm -hmm. side, I, I'm kind of really, really like Justin Thomas. The way he, I mean, he's like very much like McEnroe, um, very invested in the history of the game and um, like his demeanor on the course, uh, very competitive. Um, but can, you know, see the levity of the moment. And, um, and, uh, you know, these guys are young, but they're, they're poised and, and, uh, boy, do they compete. And, uh, that's what you want. Yep. I'm with you on that. It, it's an interesting little time to be a golf fan because you are now officially a generation removed from Tiger Woods. And obviously that's, and Phil Nicholson, and that suffocated the air out of the sport for many, many years and for better or for worse. I mean, golf's not as big as it used to be, but still it's, it's a new era, new dawn, and you really like golf and I'm glad these new golfers and whatever the sport has become. Yeah. I like it more today than I ever have. That's um, good. Yeah. Because I think they're, the fields are, much more talented. I, I feel the same way about the NFL. Um, the teams are deeper and more talented. The quality of the quality of the play is better. Um, there's more. It's more dynamic. Um, you know, and uh, so uh, it's it's fun to just look at each tournament and the field, look at the field and go, wow. You know, you could pick out. Right off the bat, 25 guys who could, if they get hot, you know they could win. And uh, I like that. Whereas back in the day, there were really only a handful. Um, you know, I always loved it back in the heyday when we had Ray Floyd and Lee Trevino and, you know, and Chichi Rodriguez and guys like that. And, you know, with Nicholas there and Palmer. And, you know, that was really fun. And then the Tiger years were heavily dominated by him and you know um that was fun too in its own different way because of the mystique um and the legendary um level of his play but but uh, i think today it's just in such great shape because of the wealth um of talent and the science of taking care of athletes bodies now has gotten into golf because 
you know, part of the reason Tiger Woods was able to dominate was he was doing, I've, I've watched the Tiger Woods documentary, but it was like, he was doing military style workouts while other people were just like showing up and playing 72 holes. And maybe they'd go right. for a run every now and then, but right. now everyone is taking care of their bodies and using science to evolve the athlete body. And, you know, when you have money too in sports, all of a sudden the investment in the body starts going up and all that stuff. Right. So right. yeah, you're seeing some of that now in every, yeah. I think with three generations deep now, or even four generations deep of people, crafting the science of taking care of the body and right you know it, it's 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 been happening for years in football and basketball and baseball and hockey hockey i don't know too much about but i assume hockey and soccer and now it's it's gone down into golf and tennis and yep. the ufc and things of that of, of the the smaller niche sports as they get more money sure definitely yeah you have yeah. golfers at higher skill sets because they're crafting their bodies in such a way to to have higher skill sets in playing golf yeah like athletes absolutely. Absolutely. you don't hear a lot of people saying golfers aren't athletes anymore that conversation has hasn't really been around since i was like five years old of <laughs> golfers aren't real athletes that that conversation hasn't really been around for years and years but it's still anyone's game i mean mm-hmm. you know you there's no one body type that has a mastery over the field. So, you know, golf is such a game of instincts and feel and technique that virtually, you know, people from all different body types. I always felt, for right or for wrong, the shorter you were, the better chance of being good. I think the farther away you are from the ball, I know being 6'2 myself, um, has its issues for getting the right swing plane um, or consistent swing planes. Whereas if that's why in the NFL, you see all these kickers are like diminutive. I mean, the closer you are to the ball, um, the more level of swing plane you can have, uh, I think uh, can increase your chances of doing well. And because of the technology and because of the way golfers train, like you were saying, um, some of these young these small golfers can pound the ball. I mean, it's not like they're, you know, um, they lack the power. Um, it's, you know, because the golf swing, they can generate all kinds of golf, you know, speed, head speed, um, to be right up there with the big boys and, uh, and be more accurate. Um, and in places like Brookline, um, and, uh, you know, the, PGA venues, uh, PGA championship venues that they pick. Yeah, you have to be precise and and long. And uh, you know, uh, look at Fitzpatrick; he's not a big man. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he, but he he is he has got a pure golf swing, and uh, you know he's stri- such a ball striker, and he's got the complete game. Um, going as a young man, it's very impressive. Yes, I agree there. I also looking up who is the tallest kicker in the NFL because I, I never think about it in comparison to how um, how tall those guys are. Because obviously, most NFL players are just super sized human beings, and so I never think about whether 
are kickers actually small or are kickers only small relative to, you know, what we're seeing on television? Um, I remember kickers in the day used to be smaller, but I'm thinking of it now within the NFL context. So Justin Tucker's six one, which is interesting. I didn't, I never thought of Justin Tucker as one of the taller NFL kickers, but right. I'm trying to think, okay, so let's see. It looks like the tallest kicker used to be like years ago, Stefan Hauschka, the, the kicker for Seattle and Buffalo yeah. for a few years, but he's yeah. retired now. He was six foot four. Right. And then it looks like oh there we go Daniel Carlson is six foot five the kicker for the Raiders who okay I don't know if he made a Pro Bowl but he was really good last year so yep. yeah I guess six five is what the tallest kicker comes in at now but you're right I think of kickers hanging around six feet or five foot eight or five foot nine yeah five foot I mean ten you could be any height if you can have a consistent swing plane um. You you can kick in the NFL, and same thing in golf. You can be six five, or you can be five six, it's and uh, Crosby, six, still be outstanding. So that's what makes.